Welcome back to Bitcoin Builders. Today, I am joined by Max Hillebrand. Now, Max has a really interesting set of contributions to this space that are rooted not just in entrepreneurship, but also in philosophy and his perception of economics, which we get into in today's conversation. I love the way that Max describes himself on his website, which is as a free software entrepreneur building Bitcoin weapons. Max writes, my focus is on creating a second realm with a sound monetary economy in which sovereign individuals can pursue their entrepreneurial action. Today, we get into what all of that means, how it translates to Bitcoin and Lightning privacy, and much, much more. Bitcoin Builders is brought to you, of course, by In Wolf's Clothing. Wolf is the first and only startup accelerator dedicated entirely to Bitcoin and Lightning. It's Friday, September 29th. This is Bitcoin Builders. Let's go. All right, Max, welcome to the show. How are you doing, sir? Ah, really well. Uh, looking forward to the conversation. Always nice to talk about some Bitcoin and privacy. Yeah. So, uh, you know, where I wanted to start is the, the framing of this particular podcast is Bitcoin builders, right? People who are building on Bitcoin, people who are kind of, you know, uh, that could be developers, that could be entrepreneurs, that could be community members. Like there's a lot of different things that that means. But one of the things that's interesting about being a builder in Bitcoin is that I think that there is inherently a lot more philosophy, a lot more sort of mission orientation that goes into it. And I think you're exemplary of that, right? Because if you go to your your website, it doesn't say like entrepreneur doing this thing. It's it's a variety of things. I mean, how do you conceptualize yourself within the Bitcoin space? Is it as a builder? Is it as a philosopher? Is it at kind of all of the above? You know, I, I'm super interested in just kind of starting with how your own self-perception, I guess. Yeah, I think the word entrepreneur summarizes it best because it includes all of this, right? I, I think a proper entrepreneur is a very very wide, very holistic uh, thing to do. So I'm very interested in economics. That was always something I, I, I loved thinking about. And then thereafter also philosophy, right? Because economics is, is a really fascinating school of thought and, and that kickstarts a lot of other ways of thinking. And that's basically philosophy. Um, and uh, ethics as well. Uh, this is something that also thanks to economics and understanding the the, the real downside of theft and, and the real upside of, of collaboration that ethics became a super important part in, in my way of life as well. And then cyberpunk. This is, I think, where, where Bitcoin really shines, that it is this philosophy of, of freedom and embodied in code, so to say. Um, Bitcoin is, is not neutral, ethically speaking. It has a really profound ethic uh, that is very rigorously enforced. Right? It, it is impossible to steal in Bitcoin. You simply cannot forge a signature if you don't have the private key. And the inflation of money is strictly prohibited. And you cannot simply increase the Bitcoin money supply. That's not how it works. And these things are based on a very deep ethics that I think is super important to understand. Uh, and I think that's why people who get more exposed to Bitcoin and to work on the space really have profound character changes. Uh, and, and that's super exciting to see. Let's stay in the realm of philosophy, ethics, and economics for a moment. I would love to ask how your sort of personal philosophy around privacy came to be. Uh, what part of that journey did that start to intersect? And was the discovery of or coming to Bitcoin a sort of a natural next step? Was it something that when you saw it, it clicked in? Or was it sort of, you know, part of the evolutionary journey as you were kind of coming to your own thoughts about these issues? And I think my main background in economics, and especially Austrian economics, 
primed me for, for the privacy debate, but not explicitly. I didn't think much about privacy when, when I was just thinking about economics. But then a friend of mine uh, helped me install uh, Ubuntu, a uh, Linux distribution, uh, free and open source. And that for the first time really got me think about cyberspace. And also part of his pitch was that, yeah, the, the information here on the computer will not just be randomly shared with any third party as, as that is the case on, on Microsoft or, or Apple machines, right? Where, where information is just broadcasted to other people. Uh, with these free and open source operating systems, that's not the case. And and I found it super compelling. And that kick-started me down into the free software and, and cyberpunk rabbit hole uh, slowly. And, and then shortly after where I you know rediscovered Bitcoin again, now having that free software uh, experience too, that is where it made a, a holistic click. Uh, then I just doubled down and, and what you know came in the past, uh, there's a lot of immensely great writings and, and thoughts uh, on, on the cyberpunk mailing list and, and books written by the people who, who partook in there. Uh, so it, it, it's a very approachable, very, very beautiful subject. And I just can recommend everyone to, to look into it. This is an obviously way too big question, but if you had to try to encapsulate your kind of gut level sense of privacy or, or norms of privacy or what it should be, how would you describe it? You know, the sort of the starting point genesis from which specific applications such as we might talk about in Bitcoin come from? I think ultimately there's one rule for sure, don't steal. But I think there's a second rule that goes quite handy, mind your own business. Right? There's just a lot of things that are simply none of your business, right? You have a bunch of problems and you should focus on solving your own problems rather than meddling in the problems of others. Surely when people invite you to collaborate, right? when, when people want to work with you, to talk with you, etc., then, then sure, sure, be your best and, and collaborate to, to your, your greatest possible extent. But when you're not invited, when, when you're not desired, just stay out of it. That's, I think, the, the, the overall mindset. There's many, you know, every time we have a conversation, we speak differently. To an extent, we are a different person, right? Because it's a different set and setting. We're talking to a different person at a different point in time, at a different place, about a different subject. So each conversation is, is fundamentally unique. And keeping it selectively revealed to only a, a few people, those people in that conversation, make it meaningful because there's something revealed, something manifested that, that just those two people know. And that's something extremely human. And we want to extend this uh, in cyberspace as well. And cyberspace gives us the ability to reach millions of people. Anyone who would want to listen in on this conversation in particular can just download the MP3 file, right? So we have the ability to share information broadly and freely and, and cheaply with anyone, completely anonymously, which is fantastic. But that doesn't mean that we should do it for every single conversation. There's many deep and important conversations that have to be had where you don't want the entire world listening in. Uh, because you never know who's listening, right? And, and uh, unfortunately, there are people who steal and people who do not mind their business. And if they learn important information about you, then that can be used against uh, against you. Right? I mean, the most extreme example that I hope everyone listening understands is if you if if someone spies on your private keys and and, and he finds out that secret of yours, well, all of a sudden he has all of your money. <laughs> That's something that you should very, very much try to avoid. And you, you should be very private, very selective with whom you share your private key. And most likely it should be no one. Bitcoin, I think, just or shows, it embodies that privacy is, is fundamental to money. It is fundamental to, to trade. It is fundamental to, to human and human collaboration. 
So it is something we need to treasure and where we need to build the tools that embody these principles, just like Bitcoin and, and many others. So you started to kind of walk down the, this path already, but where do you see privacy intersecting with economic philosophy? Because I think that there, you know, you just started to articulate so many of the places where we take for granted that it's this piece of, of what we do, but I don't tend to find it articulated as, you know, it's not like uh, free markets are integral to capitalism. People don't talk about privacy in the same way, even though there's sort of these implicit assumptions about it. Where do you see those connection points, you know, either with specific ph economic philosophies or just economics in general? Well, uh, private property, right? That's the, the core realization of economics, right? A fundamental concept among humans that we need to uphold in order to have anything resembling a peaceful society. If we don't know who owns what, then we have the problem of, of everyone can do anything with everything. And there will be chaos quite soon. And it's going to be very difficult to plan and to build anything meaningful. Right? You're not going to plan a cathedral uh, if, if, if there, there is no architect, no, no plan. And so private property means that one person gets to choose how to allocate a certain resource to consume it or to use it in production and how, with what quantity, at what time, where, etc. All of these questions of how to allocate a resource is answered by whom? The owner of the property, meaning that only he gets to choose where it gets spent and he gets to exclude all of the other infinite opportunity costs, the other places where the resource could have been allocated. They are discarded right, and ignored. And that is a good thing, right? Because someone has to make the decision and the property owner gets to do that. But this is not just the case for physical scarce resources. This is for, for intellectual uh, information as well, because any idea has to be embodied in something, right? And, and your human body, your, your, your mind that generates these ideas on, on what are the problems and how to solve these problems and how to allocate these resources, they are fundamentally originated from your body. And since you have full control and, and sovereign control over your body, therefore it is your right to control your body as you see fit. Your body is, is just another piece of property that you can exclude other people from controlling. If someone says walk over there, but you don't want to, you don't walk over there. Right? Uh, so the enforcement of the individual sovereignty of the control over the body is inherent in nature. And therefore all of the words that we can speak are inherently under the control of us. And just as much as we have private property, meaning that we can selectively reveal how to, or selectively choose how to use these resources, the same, we have the privacy, the ability to, to be private, to selectively reveal information about ourselves and to choose whom to say what to. And this is extremely important. And in fact, it is at the very foundation of praxeology as a science. Praxeology starts, uh, praxeology is the, the, the science of, uh, or the logic of human action. And there, there are two fundamental axioms that, that we assume at the starting point. First, that humans act. We have unlimited wants and, and unlimited resources to satisfy these. So we have to choose which problems to solve with which resources. That is action. And simultaneously, and Sermon Hoppe added to this, uh, the second axiom, the axiom of argumentation. The fact that humans can argue about a topic and discover the truthful cause of it. And the ability to, to collaborate in argumentation is central in explaining the consequences of human action, what economics is all about. 
And in fact, this this action, sorry, this argumentation axiom gives us even a foundational building block to build a purely rational ethics on which actions are morally good or morally bad. So argumentation, again, relies on the privacy to selectively choose how to speak and with whom to speak so that we can have an honest debate among each other and figure out what the truth is of things, because that will help us to allocate resources more strictly. So privacy, again, super important for economics. Yeah. So I'm going to ask this question much less precisely than I would like, but we'll, we'll muddle through it. And I think you'll get kind of where I'm going. How much do you see a lot of the problems that we're particularly trying to solve right now as effectively consequences of translating all of these principles to a world in which everything is transmitted through code and through software? And what I mean by that is the idea of ideas as property is very different in a world where we're speaking exclusively on platforms where someone else owns the agoras in which we're speaking. And a lot of the discussions that we have around sort of, you know, the autonomy of speech or privacy has to do with those questions of platforms now, who can deplatform us, who can kick us off. In some ways, there's a monetary equivalent where the nature of privacy in money changes and even property, when it's just balances being moved on a ledger over wires versus physical, you know, bullion being handed back and forth, because once again, the sort of control gets ceded to the people who control the code to some extent. I guess, you know, how much do you see sort of this being the the grand context, I guess, for these questions and these these challenges now? Really great question. And again, this is at the core of what we've been speaking about. Um, and, and I think, thankfully, Austrian economics is, is the only school of thought in, in the economic realm that truly has an, an honest and, and true account of the intellectual realm, right? The realm of ideas, the cyberspace, because there's a clear differentiation between scarce goods and non-scarce goods. And a good is anything that helps you achieve your problems, basically. But they can be scarce in the sense that the good gets used up as soon as you have consumed it in a certain resource or in a certain problem, meaning that a single resource can only be applied by one individual at one time for one thing. Meaning if, if you eat the apple, I cannot eat the apple because it's gone. And, and, and if you eat it today, you can't eat it tomorrow. Right? So there's a scarce resource, meaning we have to be very careful about how do we allocate this limited resource because we have unlimited ones. <laughs> and that means there's a fundamental resource allocation conflict. And we would all love to have a golden helicopter. Unfortunately, there ain't enough gold to build many, many golden helicopters. So uh, that is, that's just a fact of reality, right? Property rights is the only workable solution to this resource allocation problem. How do we figure out where to spend our limited resources? Well, the guy who created it, who found those resources, he gets to decide what to do with it, right? The, the, the person who built it gets to keep it and decide what to do with it. That's the only thing that makes sense. And it works beautifully, right? It, it just means that you shouldn't steal. <laughs> That's the only thing you have to do, and then the rest will kind of uh, work itself out. But ideas are fundamentally limited. Right? The words that I'm speaking to you now, it's not that I'm giving them up. I still retain the ideas. But speaking them to you means that not just you get to hear them, but thousands of others of people. And we can copy information which the internet shows, right? It, we've reduced the cost of copying information to basically zero, where at perfect integrity and at near zero cost, we can copy information not just once, but a billion times. 
and send it at the speed of light all around the globe or to other planets. Uh, that is because the ideas are not scarce. They can be applied not just once for one person at one time. They can be applied for anyone, for any problem, at any time, at any place. And this means there is no resource allocation conflict here. Right? There, we don't need to fight about who gets to use the ideas. Everyone can use the ideas. Because you having the idea doesn't impale, impede me from having the same idea. This is perfectly explained in Austrian economics and, and, and with praxeological rigor. Um, and this also explains the, the money problem of cyberspace. Because since before the internet, the cyberpunks have tried to figure out how to make digital money work in cyberspace. And it turns out it's bloody difficult to have a money when everything is non-scarce. Because if you can just create infinite amounts of money at zero cost, well, then it's not going to hold its value very long because supply and demand meet, meaning the price of, of the money will, will drop if anyone can just inflate the money. It's simply not a useful good, right? a, a scarce resource to use in resource allocation. A resource has to be scarce before it can be a money. And the only way that we figured out how to achieve scarcity in cyberspace back in the days, was with a single trusted third party. David Chom figured that out. Chom in eCash, a perfectly anonymous money system, as long as you trust the third party, because you need that third party to run a server and to have a secret private key to keep a list of all the transactions that happened in the past and to be there to redeem the money, right, ultimately. And if that company, that server gets shut down, uh, goes offline for whatever reason, then all of the digital money is gone. It literally disappears because, again, information has to be embodied. And if we remove the physical embodiment, the server that this that, that the central system is running on, then it literally is gone. It does not exist. Therefore, we never solved money in cyberspace because the only solution relied on a single trusted third party. And that's always a security hole until Satoshi Nakamoto comes along, right, where, where he figures out an idea, right? A non-scarce idea, a protocol, a software implementation where we can share a bunch of information, not just with one person, but with everyone who wants to use the money system. Everyone gets a copy of every transaction that has ever happened and everyone gets to verify every transaction of everyone else. And so that means we distribute the risk of running that system, not just to one person, but to many people because we can, because information is non-scarce. And that's the, the beautiful uh, thing of Bitcoin. Uh, finally, we have a decentralized money in cyberspace. So, okay, perfect segue. It's like we planned this. The way that this system works predicated upon everyone having access to every transaction to be able to confirm it. So you coming into this space with, you know, kind of ideas about privacy, where are the tensions inherent in sort of the the, the system that's required to make a decentralized, you know, peer-to-peer -peer money work with the these sort of goals of of privacy. You know, I mean, I guess maybe I'll ask this in two ways. First, did you see sort of some inherent tension there, you know, immediately as you started to dive in and or what kind of, you know, led you to start thinking about how to add additional layers of privacy to to the Bitcoin ecosystem? Yeah, I think this problem might not have been the first thing that that I noticed in Bitcoin because well there's many other things to, to be interested about. But it certainly was the first feedback that Hoshi received, right? On the Cypherpunk mailing list, the first response was, bro, this doesn't scale and this isn't private. <laughs> the, uh, sending your transaction to everyone else and you needing to verify every transaction of everyone else, 
It's just a ridiculous idea, right? It's obviously stupid. It's just, unfortunately, this is the only way that it that it can be achieved. <laughs> um, uh, and, well, Satoshi found a beautiful, uh, an ugly hack that is a beautiful solution after all. But yeah, it's, a, it's a huge problem, right? So scalability-wise, I mean, there's billions of transactions happening every day, like already right now. And in the future, where we have computers making payments you know, multiple times per second, there's going to be a lot of transactions. We can't keep track of it all for everyone else. So we, we need to find solutions to that. And simultaneously, right, it's the same side of the coin. If everyone knows about every transaction of everyone else, that's a massive surveillance system. And, and all of a sudden, we have no longer the ability to choose whom we tell how much money we have. And we, we have to tell everyone all the time, including your, your worst enemy. And, and that's just not nice. That, that makes it very easy for people to attack you. And attacks should not be cheap. Attacks should be expensive. Defense should be cheap. And if we have really cheap defense and very expensive attacks, then we're all going to be safe. And the cool thing is privacy is the cheapest defense that you can have. Because if nobody knows how much money you have, then nobody knows if you're a good target. And, and you don't need to carry around you know, bodyguards and, and guns all the time to protect yourself because everyone knows that you're rich. You can just be a you know, humble flap just stacking sets quietly and nobody will bother you. And that seems to me a much better, a much nicer life than being paranoid all the time. How did you come to start working on on sort of privacy on Bitcoin? Was was Wasabi the, for the first project that you were working on? Were there others that you were contributing to? And I guess, what was the genesis of, of Wasabi when it started? Yeah, my, my first contributions to the space were similar to you, you know, podcasts, uh, videos, um, interviews about uh, with, with the people working on the tech, explanations of how to use them. In the early days, very economics focused, but then slowly as I got more and more down the tech uh, side, also a lot of the tech stuff, right? That's where I started my first contributions, not just to Wasabi, but, but to many projects, right? BTC Pay, Cold Card, Model, BISC, uh, you name it. And that was really fun because I, I got to learn more about the, the topics as I was creating the shows, which I think you can attest to, right? That's the best part of being a podcaster, all the amazing conversations you have and, and the, the stuff that you learn. Absolutely. So I, I just did that, you know, and, and there were so many projects that I find awesome and I just try to be helpful wherever I can. I'm not a coder at all, um, but there's everything but code to do, which is a lot. And then, you know, marketing, writing the documentation, feature requests, back reports, helping out with, with the project management, really whatever. And that just kind of stuck. So for, for most of these projects, I was just one of the early users, uh, very enthusiastic. And the cool thing is that in free software, you can just contribute and be useful and people will love you for being useful. <laughs> that's that's pretty nice. Uh, so the barrier to to entry uh, in, in the space is ridiculously low, which is absolutely great. Like you you don't need to apply for a job to to start. You just start. <laughs> and uh, when when you're actually useful, then, then people will thank you for it and probably pay you for it. And I, I, that kind of was, was the, the rabbit hole, the pr pretty wild ride, but it was a lot of fun. And now a quick word from our sponsor. Today's podcast is brought to you by In Wolf's Clothing. Wolf is the first startup accelerator dedicated to lightning. Four times per year, Wolf brings teams from around the world to New York City to work with like-minded entrepreneurs, pushing the boundaries of what's possible with Bitcoin and lightning. The program is designed to help early stage startups achieve product market fit, develop their brand, secure early stage funding, and grow businesses that fuel the global adoption of Bitcoin. 
Learn more or apply at wolfnyc.com. That's wolfnyc.com. And now back to the show. What is your sense of sort of the state of Bitcoin privacy right now? If you had to sum it up for someone who had gone to sleep for the last five years, woke up and asked, where's the state of the conversation? What's the state of the tooling? What's the state of the external pressures on it? Yeah, I think it's fixed now. We have anonymous money. Uh, Seriously. Uh, The last five years, the amount of progress was mind-blowing, if you think about it. Like, coin joints were like a little bit of a thing, but not really. Uh, Versus by now, we... We've almost perfected the craft. Um, there, there's still a bunch of open problems and, and ways to improve it. But conceptually, the idea of large coin joins is the way to achieve anonymous transactions in Bitcoin. Satoshi gave us a beautiful, theoretically perfectly anonymous payment system. We, we just didn't realize it. I think we, as is to be expected, that in the early days of Bitcoin, we have no idea what the f*** we're doing and we're misapplying the tool very badly. And I think that happened. Just the idea of single user transactions that one person alone creates an input and and two outputs is not private because there's very little ways that you could interpret this transaction. There's just one input and and you will have to pay one output and the rest is the change, right? So very simple to see what's going on, but that's not fundamentally the case because as soon as we have hundreds of inputs and hundreds of outputs from many different users, then we realize the actual way that Bitcoin works. In Bitcoin, there's not that the Satoshi from the first output goes into the third output. That's not how it works. All of the inputs get destroyed and the all of the Satoshis on the output side get magically created. There is no flow from left to right. It's like a black hole, like a wormhole almost. And the flow of Satoshis from the input to the output is perfectly private. And the only thing we need to do to make Bitcoin a perfectly private transaction system is build big transactions. Because then we increase the size and the ambiguity of the already existing anonymous flow of Satoshis inside the transaction. And this realization is is awesome because we don't need to change Bitcoin one bit. The existing consensus rule are are plenty good enough to to have a really, really strong privacy guarantees for for our on-chain transactions. And I'm super bullish. Just alone on that, Lightning Network and Lightning Privacy is a whole other topic where I'm super bullish on. But... I really think we got this. Um, The Monero and Zcash guys, they can come back now. (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting. There's something very philosophically aligned, too, about an approach to privacy that involves sort of voluntary coordination among people that's sort of not, not prompted or forced to create these sort of larger transactions. How much have you seen the sort of broader crackdown on privacy technology, particularly sanctions on Tornado Cash uh, and the sort of the, the, the battles that they're fighting impact the way that people are building around Bitcoin privacy, if at all? Yeah, I think definitely that, that uh, such takedowns increase the cost of, of contribution. It's a lot of perceived risk and you know, for, for good reasons, because a lot of people are in jail for uh, not even doing wrong things. Right? Uh, uh, and many cypherpunks particularly, because apparently the the ideas that we're working on are, are too dangerous to be had. And nevertheless, I think these, these technologies are extremely important. If you think about it, the fundamental necessity of these technologies to exist in order for humanity to not just survive, but, but thrive is obvious. And I think that's why for, for decades now, there have been an enormous dedication by cypherpunks to continue working on these projects, despite enormous pushback. 
I mean, look at the 1990s with the crypto wars, right? Like the, the work of, of Phil Zimmerman and co. It was officially illegal, right, to to publish this code, this information, right? Um, uh, yet still, they continue to push forward uh, despite this massive adversary. And thank God that they did, because imagine where we would be uh, with, uh, with with cryptography not not being allowed to be used by by the masses. Um, it would be in an utter dystopia. So I, I think it is important to to continue in the struggle, but simultaneously not not to be stupid either, right? Um, pick the right hill to die on. Um, and I think what what we've seen in the past uh, with a lot of takedowns of, of financial privacy technologies, although 40, 50 years ago still, or 30, 40 years ago, is that the aspect that the privacy service was coupled with a custodianship of money. And all the way with Xiaomi and eCash, they enabled anonymous transactions, but they could run away with your money. And we see that time and time again. Uh, also now with Bitcoin, right? They're since the very beginning have been custodial mixers where you send your Bitcoin to someone else's private keys and the service provider sends you back someone else's money later. Um, sure, you you improve your on-chain privacy, but the guy can run away with your money. And turns out that in, in society, whenever we have a business relationship where, where one guy can run away with your money, that humans seem that they seem to find certain rules that make these uh, you know these relationships not suck because they can suck really easily, right? So I understand the the, the rationale behind regulating custodianship, uh, like custodian service provision. And there are existing laws in numerous jurisdictions, and especially in the last couple of years with, with the fiat uh, financial system increasing, where everything is based on credit and privacy is very much not, not optimized for, that, that is a big problem. But where I think CoinJoin in particular is, is unique here is that it is a privacy technology that is in fact not a monetary technology per se, in the sense that the CoinJoin coordinator or anyone else for that matter cannot run away with your money. Because in a coin join, you never relinquish the control over your money. You're at any point in time, 100% in control over the ability to spend your inputs and outputs. Nobody can steal from you and nobody can spy on you. Meaning that fundamentally, uh, the provision of a coin join service is, is very, very different to the provision of, of a custodial banking relationship uh, that provides a privacy service on top. So I, I hope, I faith uh, that the existing regulations, which which clearly mark that communications technology like a coin join coordination is, is fully legal, will continue to to be upheld because after all it makes sense. So we will see, but I'm I'm still hopeful. Uh, these uh, these technologies and ideas are powerful, uh, and the ideas are bulletproof. It's interesting. The uh, if you sort of swim and wade through a lot of the more highly politicized proclamations and fights that go on around the the Bitcoin and crypto space, when push comes to shove, almost all of the significant debates, the really thorny things, are to some extent this question of custodianship and what it means versus sort of true peer-to-peer, right? Like everything comes down. And and, and it's interesting if you watch the intellectual path of, of politicians who kind of really get into this, the hill that they keep finding themselves defending is exactly this, that there is a fundamental difference between sending your money to a third party and that third party, you know, having all these sort of requirements versus two people interacting in some way voluntarily without that. And, and, and that, I mean, that really is where, where the battles are. Now, on the other side are people who are just going to say, 
terrorist North Korea doesn't matter, figure it out, you know, like it, it, it doesn't we, like we need that surveillance no matter what. But that is really the, you know, the, the, the central thing that you just articulated is where I see the core political battle of this round, you know, who, whatever. The CFTC regulates things or the SEC, I think that that's ultimately much less relevant than does the law enshrine and, and reify this, this distinction in a very core way. Yeah, I, I sure hope so. You know, it's, and finally, it's the same arguments as back in, in uh, the days with the crypto wars, right? This is just speech, guys. This is, this is ones and zeros. This is people talking to each other. To put such regulations for the way people can talk to each other, which can only be enforced if you surveil every conversation that, that is happening by everyone, it simply does not work, right? It's not that I don't want it to work. It's fundamentally impossible, right? We, we need to build societies that, that are built on truth and, and on reason, right? And protocols that make sense. There, there's good protocol design and there's bad protocol design, right? There's, there's software with bugs and software that's logically correct. And that's super important. It's not easy to build good protocols that actually work in, in many scenarios. So being a regulator is bloody difficult. But like, hopefully the people there don't do a bad job at it. I think we, we definitely need a body of rules, um, certainly. And probably common law or something like this is, is, is the best that we've, we've seen in the past. But again, resource allocation, there's a huge potential for conflict whenever humans want to have stuff that, that other people have. And, and we need to find ways to deal with that. And we do need to find ways to deal with that in cyberspace too. And, and Bitcoin proposes a, a radical new approach to, to do scarce resources in cyberspace. And quite frankly, a lot of the stuff is not yet figured out. So I'm, I'm, I'm curious to how it will go. I, I just hope that uh, we get to push towards truth. I want to come back and ask uh, some questions about your perception of how the rise of artificial intelligence is changing some of these conversations. But first, I want to veer back to lightning and privacy. So you, you, know, you sort of mentioned, mentioned that offhandedly as we were asked, I was asking about Bitcoin privacy in general. Same question that I had, you know, in terms of the state of the, the discourse and tooling when it comes to privacy on Lightning. How does it differ as an issue from Bitcoin privacy? How are people thinking about it? What are people building? And, and what do you see as sort of most important to do next? I mean, Lightning is, is a fundamental step shift improvement in privacy, simply because you no longer have to send every transaction to everyone else to ver for verification. Right? Most transactions that you do on Lightning only need to be verified by your direct general party and, and, and a couple of people in, in between the route. And so that's a fundamental improvement for scalability and, of course, for privacy, uh, just from the get-go, even in the early days. But nevertheless, to have a, a properly anonymous transaction system on, on Lightning is still a difficult task and, and very much a work in progress. So even right now, there's, there's rather good sender privacy, meaning if you send someone else money, that person has no idea where the money came from. It could have been anyone who sent him that money, which is great. But the receiver still has to reveal himself to the sender, meaning that, hey, here is my public key. Uh, this is my Lightning node. These are my on-chain UTXOs right, that I have my Lightning channels on. Please pay me. And that is information that is currently revealed, which I would argue doesn't have to be revealed, and, and therefore it should not be revealed. Uh, now we have with, with blinded paths, uh, which is a, an addition to the bold 12 offer specification, that this is a solution, a fundamental solution to the receiver privacy problem, meaning now you can receive money without anyone knowing where the money actually ends up at, with which Lightning node or on which on-chain UTXOs, which is fantastic. Another major step shift was the activation of, of Taproot, meaning the integration of Schnorr signatures, a very simple and beautifully 
composable signature scheme where we can do a lot of cool stuff, like compressing a multi-signature that were two out of two public keys uh, um, to sign the transaction. On-chain, it looks like a single public key and a single signature now, meaning it is much more difficult to find out which on-chain UTXO is in fact a lightning channel and which is just on someone's single SIG hardware wallet, uh, which is great. And, and the same signature scheme can be used to improve the routing capability of the lightning network. So move away from hashed time lock contract to point time lock contract, which again makes the route look like, like signatures, um, much more indistinguishable uh, than, than hash pre-images. And certain attacks on and, and spying attacks on, on the routing network uh, will be mitigated with this. Uh, so there's many little things in Lightning Network that, that have to be carefully improved in, in order to have a solid privacy guarantee. But the great thing is we know about all of the problems. We have solutions to all of these problems. And the solutions are being rolled out like right now. And I'm, I'm pretty confident that within a couple of years, we will have a, a very scalable and, and very private payment system as completely off-chain. Another sort of big point of discussion this year is obviously the rise of ordinals and and then other things built on top of sort of the the idea of of ordinals, uh, you know, enumerating the uh, different satoshis. Does that create challenges when it comes to Bitcoin fungibility or privacy? Do you think? I don't think the the ordinals calculation scheme does. Uh, it, it's simply an arbitrary rule that is run on top of the Bitcoin blockchain. It adds arbitrary metadata, basically, to UTXOs. You can put a lot of arbitrary metadata on UTXOs. That's what many people do also as a business, right? That's what chain surveillance is, is basically about. So it's it's a fundamental problem of having a publicly verifiable database like, like the blockchain that people can look at the stuff and, and make conclusions of, uh, on the stuff. But ultimately, it doesn't hinder the, the privacy of Bitcoin any more than, than anything else. Where I think I, we see an interesting context is that with the additional use cases of, of the Bitcoin blockchain that have been discovered and the demand for block space increasing, of course, the, the fees of the block space will increase as well. And we've seen that in recent months. And I think this is harkens back to, to the importance of keeping efficiency at the forefront in mind when we design these protocols. They, they should not just be private, they, they must be efficient. And because if they're not efficient, they're going to be outrageously expensive to use. And there are many alternative techniques that are not coin joins to try to reclaim privacy on the blockchain. Coin swaps, for example, CoinJoin XT, have many different proposals. The big downside to these, they're rather inefficient. You need to buy a lot of block space before you have a private coin at the end of the ceremony. Versus a coin join, because it is a fundamentally a single transaction and not more, is extremely efficient. And then on top of that, if we design a coin join protocol that, that is not just naively put together, uh, but something that, that's actually rigorously thought through, um, like with Wasabi Wallet 2.0, then we see enormous efficiency improvements. The trick, again, is large coin joins. The, the larger the coin join transaction is, the more cheaper it is, simply because we, we distribute the cost among many people. And that means that I think now with Wabi Sabi CoinJoin scheme and, and Wasabi, we have a, a flexible and, and cheap, affordable on-chain privacy that can also be used to open lightning channels, right? Or, or uh, pay into your vault, or send money out of your multi-six scheme to an, a hot wallet, et cetera. All of these transactions can be batched together efficiently with a minimal on-chain footprint, but a, a large amount of privacy. And I think that will be more and more evident 
SPs increase, and which will be inevitable. It's it's kind of in that realm of these are the types of problems we want to have to solve, right? You know, having having high fees that keep the network, you know, uh, <laughs> secure, and then figuring out how to lower them for you know the the right uses is, I think, relative to the the opposite problem is a good one. So. You've articulated a lot of, of sort of, you know, how much things have changed for the better over the last few years. What do you see as some of the big outstanding challenges or, or, or things that sort of Bitcoiners need to be thinking through and working on over the next few years? I think it's the same problems we were always thinking about, right? Make it, make it faster, make it more private, make it easier to use. Um, I, I think especially the last aspect is, is often overlooked. Because we're a lot of enthusiasts, very much involved in the system, and, and we like to build tools for enthusiasts. There's a, a wonderful paper from the 1990s that, that everyone should read called Anonymity Loves Company on the network effect in relation to privacy. Because if we want to have anonymous technologies, then most anonymity, anonymity systems depend on a large anonymity set size. So a large crowd where you can hide in. The more people use a system, the larger its network effect, the larger its usability and especially the, the larger its privacy. And if we want to have these, these large networks, and with Bitcoin, we definitely want to have a large network because it's not just good for our privacy, it's good for our money, right? A, a larger, more used a good as, as medium of exchange, that is, that is what money is all about as we want to scale this. But then the, the, the tools have to be easy and intuitive to use with, without, being, uh, without overloading the user on complexity and without the user needing to make those very difficult decisions that are part of all of these nuances of this crazy complicated software. So great user experience is, is, is super essential. Um, and, and yet another thing we focus on at, at Wasabi, and it, it should just work by default with clicking a single button, right? Receive, wait, and, and spend. And, and that's it. You don't have to worry about anything else. The problem is it's super easy to build these intuitive user interfaces in a privacy compromised way. And it's usually extremely difficult to do so while upholding user sovereignty, user security, user privacy, and putting that at, at first priorities. So it, it will always take some time on, until the cutting edge technology is, is put with, in a nice package. But we're getting there, you know, I, I think Wasabi solves this beautifully on, on chain. I think Mutiny Wallet, as, as one example, is a super easy to use, quite sophisticated privacy lightning network wallet. We're slowly but surely getting there, you know. It's interesting, I, I think that this is a, it's an easy issue to underestimate the significance of in the sense that we talk about user experience and simplicity and parity with other user experiences just in terms of almost converting new people to feel comfortable transacting or interacting with this system. But the, I think that the, 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 almost everything about modern technology and networks shows that people are very comfortable and their default is to trade things like privacy and data sovereignty for convenience, right? Because, you know, time or perception or where everyone else is are, are so more highly valued that if one cares about things like privacy, it becomes imperative to have user experiences because it's just the nature that the average person is going to default to the easier experience because who has the time to think about, you know, and learn a totally new system. This is kind of just again validating or you know agreeing with with what you said, but but you know I think it's even more significant than it might seem for sort of the the casual person observing from the outside. Yeah, absolutely, right. Um, and it's an imperative. But thankfully, I think we got it figured out. You know, uh, another thing that improved in the last five years to your earlier question 
the Bitcoin UX research and, and design um, space, enormous improvements. And I, I think that that will continue to grow, right? The cool thing is the larger Bitcoin gets, the, the more wide array of people it, it, it speaks to. And, and therefore, the, the vast, the more vast our talent pool will be. And in the last couple of years, apparently a bunch of UX researchers found that the, the UX we do is pretty and it should be improved. And, and thankfully, they spoke up and contributed. And I think every wallet is, is benefiting from, from this. So again, it's, it's, it's not that there's anything monumental missing for us to succeed. Like we have everything that we need. Like we, we just need to work a bit more and, and really polish everything up. And, and make sure that it scales. It's absolutely achievable. It, it just it requires some dedicated engineers to figure it out. Um, but we're getting more and more of those. And, and thankfully, the existing people who, who start to work on these projects found it find it so fascinating that they continue doing it with a rigorous fervor. Um, so the the motivation in the space is, is super high, and the everyone recognizes the urge of building this. Uh, because yeah, we, we cannot just wait around and, and do nothing. Uh, the, the fiat system is utterly and we really need an alternative. Um, and yeah, we have to build it ourselves. Uh, so again, shout out to all the Bitcoin builders who make sure that you know we have a money system that's that's usable in cyberspace, even in adversarial environments. I couldn't choose to wrap it up at a better spot. So uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll end us there with a hearty here, here. But Max, thanks so much for uh, for spending some time today. Uh, you know, really, really appreciate your uh, your thoughtfulness around this, and I know others will as well. Yeah, thanks uh, again for the invite. It's it's an awesome show. I enjoy it very much. Uh, so so good to be part of it. And thanks for building the archive of all the people building this stuff because it's so cool to to see the motivation uh, behind everyone. And it's going to be something nice to look back to. This is one type of podcast where the very trite way of uh, you know every interview podcast it feels like starts with so how'd you get into the you know. And then this one, it actually is super interesting and relevant because there's always a fascinating story and it almost always is very distinct in shaping what people, what aspect of, of Bitcoin, uh, you know, people have chosen to work on. So no, it's, it's great to have you, you know, and, and folks like you here and uh, looking forward to talking again soon. Yeah, hopefully. Bye-bye and thanks. All right, guys, just a really quick wrap up over here. First of all, I really enjoyed that conversation and I hope you did too. These Bitcoin Builders interviews don't always get that deep into the philosophical side of things, but I think that it's actually really important. Ultimately, when it comes to people who are building, right, when you are spending your time and other scarce resources on trying to create something in the world, the fundamental question, one that never goes away, is, is this the thing I should be spending my time on? Should I be building this or should I be building something else? Philosophy, ethics, these ideas, these principles that underlie it, are one of the best ways to answer those questions in a manner that leads to personal alignment and continued perseverance. Now, one of the things that I loved about Max is his optimism in this alternative system that he is helping contribute to. The set of questions that we're dealing with around Bitcoin privacy and coin joins and mixers and all of these technologies are quite clearly emblematic of larger questions that we are asking ourselves once again as a society. That's why when people say things like, the question of how custodians are treated or what's considered a custodian in crypto regulations is much more significant than just which crypto companies get to keep operating and what requirements they have to report on their users. We didn't have a chance to go deep into it, but obviously the advance of artificial intelligence and the implications it has for how much data any individual has access to at any given time and what our machines can actually do does nothing but heighten the urgency of these questions. I'm glad there are folks like Max out there who are working on answers. 
and I hope you had a great time with this conversation. I want to say thanks one more time to my sponsor in Wolf's Clothing. Wolf, of course, the only startup accelerator dedicated to Bitcoin and Lightning. Go to wolfnyc.com to learn more. And thanks to you guys, as always, for listening. Until next time, let's build.